0: Hello and welcome to the History of Grob. Episode 2 – The Building Blocks of Buildings In the last episode we talked about the early history of the nation of Grob, a history which stretches back to prehistory. According to most modern historical theories, prehistory was much the same as history, except no one was paying attention. Prehistoric people still had battles and natural disasters and scientific discoveries, but they didn't feel the need to go on about it all the time. Whoever it was who discovered how to make fire didn't immediately sit down and write a press release. They got on with their next amazing invention, which was putting dead animals into that fire. Cooked meat tastes so much better than a cold animal corpse that there really was no time to waste. So, having beaten chimpanzees, dolphins and cats in the race to discover roast chicken, humankind officially won the game of evolution and history could begin. From here on there would be things like cities and nations and medicine and aeroplanes, all made possible by a constant supply of drumsticks and gravy. As a side note, it is worth remembering that cats did eventually find a way to secure their own roast chicken supply, but it involves using humans and is generally considered cheating. Dolphins are still struggling with the whole problem of starting a fire underwater, and chimpanzees appear to have given up altogether, in favour of eating fleas off each other and frustratedly hurling their faeces at humans. So, as history begins in earnest, what's happening in Grob? Well, in the generations following the Battle of the Lumpy Bitter Rock near the river, life changed dramatically for the proto-Grobian tribes. Rather than scraping out a living as a collection of small roaming groups, often in conflict with one another they were now united under a single banner. Excavations have so far failed to locate the banner itself, but wherever it ended up and whatever it looked like, people definitely united under it. Having spent the last few generations hunting, gathering and throwing rocks at each other, the Grobians, as we can now call them, began to put down roots, both metaphorically, as in adopting a more stable agrarian lifestyle, and literally, as in they planted things that had roots. Without the constant distraction of intertribal warfare, the inhabitants of the Grobian Veldt were free to pursue other, less massacre-prone hobbies, such as pottery, basket-weaving, and not being gored to death by wild pigs. The settled lifestyle they had adopted was only made possible by the sturdy structures they were now able to build from the materials around them. By combining clay, straw, and human waste, the Grobians made large bricks which, once they had been left to dry in the sun, could be used to construct simple huts. In later innovation, they tried just using clay and straw and discovered that they were still able to build huts, but now the huts didn't constantly reek of poo. The man who invented the original brick recipe apologised to everyone currently living in smelly houses and explained that it had never occurred to him you might not need to add human waste to the mix. He just assumed it would be better that way. Having perfected this vital technology and gained a worrying insight into the mind of their chief architect, the Grobians set about building a settlement – on the banks of the river which we now call the anfractious, but which was known at the time as the Big River. Later records indicate that this settlement was named The Place With The Huts That Still, Despite Our Best Efforts, Smell Of Dung. This was later shortened to Smell Dung. It is possible that, at the time, the tribespeople of the Grobian Velt didn't fully appreciate what a problem this would pose thousands of years later for the Grobian Tourist Board. This is, however, a minor stain on the reputation of an otherwise innovative people. It is at around this time that we have the first named individual in Grobian history. In written records made centuries later, we find references to a great leader dating from the foundation of Smeldau. We know little of this person, except that he was king of the Grobians during a formative period in their history. We also, of course, know his name. Early Grobian naming traditions have much in common with other tribal societies, where names are intended to describe and glorify their bearers, as well as being a way of referring to them. Throughout history, there have been tribespeople with names like he who runs with the wind, or she who speaks with the ancestors. The only difference in Grob was that children were named at birth, meaning that the druids didn't have a whole lot to go on when they were coming up with names. For this reason, the first recorded leader of the Grobian people was named King Pukes All Over Himself. It is likely that, as an adult, he went on to defeat many enemies and perform many great deeds, but that would have all happened too late for the naming ceremony. Other named figures from the same period include Nasty Rash, High Druid Snotbobble, and a widely respected warrior called Nighttime Wetlegs. You will have noticed that the names of people and places we've heard so far all appear to be in English. There is, in fact, a very good reason for this, and it brings us to one of the most fascinating details of Grobian history. Although the very early roots of language are obscure, linguists have generally been able to identify families of languages deriving from a common source, such as Latin for the Romance languages. In this context of interconnected influences, Grobian is a rare example of a language which developed entirely independently, with its own alphabet, grammar and vocabulary. In what must be one of the most baffling coincidences in linguistic history, however, the Grobian language of 1500 BC is almost identical to modern English. With no cultural connection at all between the two countries of origin and no contact between their people until centuries later, the ancient Grobian word for what we now call a dog would have been dog. Their word for milk would have been milk, and a dining room table would have been called a dining-room table. This is considered one of the greatest mysteries in linguistics, and, after an initial flurry of interest, pretty much no studies have been conducted into it in the last hundred years. In fact, it's best not even to mention it to linguists, as they tend to get a bit annoyed. Possibly the most remarkable part of the story, though, is that the language spoken in Grob in 1500 BC, being identical to 21st century English, had words for things not yet invented at the time. If you were to translate the modern English phrase, I wonder what's on television, into ancient Grobian, it would come out as, I wonder what's on television, despite the television not existing in Grob until its introduction by Dutch travellers in 1971. For thousands of years, the word television existed in Grobian without anyone having any idea what it meant. Similarly, there are Grobian engravings dating to the 3rd century AD which use the word microblogging, with seemingly no context at all. In each of these cases, the people responsible for naming the new inventions once they were eventually discovered seem to have had no knowledge of the Grobian language and were completely unaware that the name they chose already existed in the vocabulary of a small, far-off nation. There's no reason to think that this process has come to an end. In fact, it is possible that through a careful study of Grobian we might be able to learn the names of innovations yet to be discovered, if not the details of what they actually are. Grobian still has hundreds of words and phrases without meanings, which we can only assume are the names of future inventions. These potential names include nanopants, fungible cognition, and toponkification. Whenever the world gets around to discovering these things, the Grobian language will be waiting. Before we bring this episode to a close, I want to give you a quick taste of Grobian poetry. Although what I'm going to read to you is some way down the road in terms of chronology, this discussion of the Grobian language seems like as good a place as any to explore the finer points of the only poetic form native to grob. The traditional Grobian sonnet is an intricate and complex form of structured verse which focuses on the musical subtlety of rhyme that interweaves all language. In a traditional Grobian sonnet, every single word of the poem rhymes with every other word, creating an almost hypnotic web of rhythm and counter-rhythm that transports the listener to a world of absolute aesthetic purity. Here, then, is an untitled example of the form from the 13th century, which tackles complex conceptual themes, including the relationship between man and nature, life and death, animate and inanimate states of being. Untitled Sonnet Dish fish, fish dish, wish, wish, wish dish fish. Due to the demanding technical limitations of the Grobian sonnet, not many were written, and those which were tended to be quite short. The longest which has survived is a touching tale of a louse that lives on a house mouse, but due to the absence of words like the, on and ah, it lacks the kind of readability that would perhaps help to bring it to a wider audience. To this day, Grobian sonnets remain very much a niche art form, and, with lawsuits between the government of Grob and the estate of Dr Seuss still ongoing, a legally contentious one. In the next episode we'll look at the reign of King Pukeslova himself, or as he was to become, King Magnificent I, and examine the role of religion in early Grobian society. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Grob. If you enjoyed it, you might want to buy my book, 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. It's a guide to the art of terrible writing. You can get it from nastylittlepress.org or get the ebook from anywhere you normally get ebooks from.